Good morning, everyone. Welcome to YASFM and to the Women's Voices Show with Kath Kovac here uh, with you on Community Radio YASFM. I am talking with a really amazing woman, uh, Pollyanna Darling. And Pollyanna is from um, the Sunshine Coast or living at the Sunshine Coast. And she's a woman who has done very, very, very many things. <laughs> I met Pollyanna um, quite a few years ago now, uh, pre-COVID, um, at a gathering in Victoria, which was known as the Tree Sisters Australian Gathering. If you've never heard of Tree Sisters, um, it is a, a worldwide organisation, I believe, started in um, England, involved in basically in, <laughs> in planting trees, but looking at the environment from a from a women's kind of perspective. And um, Pollyanna knows not much more about that than I do. Um, but I remember just a really, really beautiful gathering of women and souls in near Seymour at a place called Common Ground. And it was uh, really an introduction to me um, of just how much women do really um, care for the environment and, and love this planet and how they're really invested um, in its future and its care and um, just making sure that, you know, it it keeps regenerating itself. And so on that theme of regeneration is what uh, Pollyanna and I are going to speak about today. Good morning, Pollyanna. How are you? Hi, Kath. I'm really well. Thank you. That's awesome. <laughs> so, Pollyanna, um, can you just tell us, I know that you are no longer involved in Tree Sisters anymore, but can you just give us a little bit of a rundown? Is that right, what I said about what Tree Sisters is? Because it's been a few years ago now and I was <laughs> trusting my memory yeah. bank. Yeah, so I was with Tree Sisters for about a decade and uh, it was it's basically a reforestation charity that uh, f- funds reforestation projects mostly in the tropics and and as well as that, it was founded by a woman with the idea that uh, women's voices needed to be brought forward and that if we could reconnect people with nature, then, you know, what we love, we protect. And so everything would change if if we could just do that. So Tree Sisters, um, at the time I was involved, was uh, obviously a charity that was funding the planting of trees for any number of different reasons, for carbon capture, for restoration of landscapes, um, for local communities. But they also ran a whole bunch of programs that were aimed at women um, and aimed at reconnecting women with nature and encouraging women to use their voices and their talents and their skills to advocate for um, trees and a healthy planet. Such a beautiful, beautiful thing. So, it's also, I guess, it's also a little bit of a double-edged sword because, for a lot, I mean, this was a lot of the work that we did in Tree Sisters at that time. Is that for, you know, women have historically uh, competed with each other, been strategically pitted against one another, and so there's, I guess, historical wounds there that have needed healing so that we can be together and. Uh, support one another and encourage one another and it's a really it, it was a really amazing thing to see what actually happens when women support each other and encourage each other and are there for each other and yeah yeah it is a really um different way of being together isn't it that like you say that 
a historical way of women being uh, sort of needing to compete and and to suffer from comparisonitis, you know, dating back to the times when, when a woman um, – Basically, had no rights. Had to sort of compete for the, for that, you know, well-off man, for instance, you know, because if yeah. you couldn't own your own property or earn your own money, then you know, what could you do um, except become reliant on uh, somebody else, uh, somebody else to support you? So, and and that even though today women can do all those things, well, not in, still in every country, but. Um, you know, at least many of us can can have a job, can buy property, can do all these things, but that societal kind of conditioning of still needing to compete with other women and compare with them is still a, a very prevalent thing in our society. Yeah, and I think also, you know, we're very conditioned to be nice and agreeable and look after everybody else and not speak our minds and not be passionate and um, forthright about the things that we care about. And I guess that's changing, but there's many places in the world where it's still not okay for women to be like that. And, you know, I'm still aware when I get passionate and forthright that, you know, I might be, someone might turn around and say, oh, you know, that's just an opinionated woman, you know, so, so that's the worst thing that could possibly happen is that you could be <laughs> opinionated. Um <laughs> Yeah, so it's a very interesting thing to bring women together in a space that is deliberately supportive and also encourage them to, and, and when I say them, I mean me as well, because I've needed all the encouragement also, to to use their voices for what they care about, because we need to speak up about what we care about. Mm. Exactly. And one of the most powerful things that I just recall now from the the gathering that I went to where I did meet you originally um, was we had a, a grieving ceremony. And grief is something, I think, in this society that also people – People don't really know what to to do with it when other people express grief, and I find that it's it's not really done very well. And in fact, I've yeah. you know been at a couple of funerals even lately, and and people are very quiet and respectful and all those sorts of things. And then I think about the other kind of like in cultures when at, at um, funerals or at burial services or, or farewelling the person that's died when there's um, for instance, in Croatia, uh, where my background is, there's, there's often um, a bit of like uh, women um, wailing, you know, yeah. and and or other cultures have um, a lot of sound and noise and all that kind of thing. And here it's like just quiet. Anyway, and so at this ceremony that was held at, at the, you know, the gathering where you were running it, we were actually encouraged to come into the centre of the circle and express our grief about whatever it be, whether it be personal or whether it be for the environment or for the trees, the planet, or for the, or for people. And um, I do recall one woman in particular who really um, just went for it, yeah. <laughs> basically. Um, I, I can't remember her name, but she was so passionate and so vocal vocal about her, her grief and it just sort of welled up, you know, and, and the fact of us, you know, witnessing that and and allowing it and and not judging it and and for me that was the first time I'd seen anything like that and and it, it really um yeah I found it quite powerful it's definitely powerful i mean we 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 have as a culture a very strange relationship with death 
And I've, I've contemplated this extensively because I've nearly died twice and, and I've had two near death experiences, which were very interesting on their own, but it got me really thinking about the fact, I mean, the thing that was so surprising about those experiences was that they were both very sudden. So it became very immediately obvious to me that death can very suddenly occur. And we kind of live our lives as though it's not going to happen. <laughs> so everything's just going to keep going on and on. And it's not true. The The price of, you know, you, you get your ticket to be alive, if you want to put it that way. And the price of that ticket is that one day you will definitely die. And living with an awareness of death, uh, I guess it gives me anyway a, a great sense of pleasure in in my daily life. You know, I have a lot of very small pleasures. But I also, I think there's something about the not allowing of death and the not allowing of grief that also prevents us from doing the work that we need to do to regenerate ourselves and to regenerate the planet. So it kind of, I feel like it kind of stops us from, or it puts us into apathy or it puts us into this sleep mode of just kind of sleeping through life without engaging passion and engaging our care and uh, activating what we can activate inside ourselves and actually doing the work that we as human beings, I mean, we're, we're part of nature, right? And so as human beings, we have a really useful role to play in the health of the places that we live and work and in the health of our communities and in in the health of the planet, basically. We're, we're a fundamental piece of that. And when we deny death and when we deny grief, we, we, we stop ourselves from being able to play that role. And we also, uh, you know, the denial of grief makes it impossible to feel joy. <laughs> Because, because if you have to stay out of your feelings of grief all the time, if you've got to keep out of those, you've got to basically keep out of all of your deep feelings. And that means that joy also becomes inaccessible. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's so true, isn't it? And, but it's hard to, to, to feel those feelings, isn't it? Because they are so, or they can be so overwhelming. Yeah, they can. And, and I think, you know, like for me, it, I've had a lot of grief that I've needed to be with, I guess, and I resisted it for a lot of my life because I was afraid that if I went into the grief, I would never come out. And I think it is one of those kind of feelings where it seems, you know, as though if you go there, you will be. Yes, FM 100.3, bringing you the best by it, and you won't be able to function and all of that. So it's definitely difficult. And because it's so, because it's not spoken about, and because we don't have containers really in in community to hold that grief, it it becomes a very private thing. And I don't think it should be. I mean, when I lived in Byron, there's a wonderful woman who who probably still does live in Byron Bay called Zenith Virago who's who is a death walker and she ran um, a day of the dead every year in Mullumbimby where people who were grieving could come and there was a whole kind of ritual 
that happened on that day that enabled people to be witnessed in their grief so that it didn't, you know, wasn't this terrible, heavy private thing anymore. It became something that was held by the whole community. And that was a really amazing thing to experience. That does sound amazing. I've never heard of anything like that. It sounds like something that's needed very often. Yeah. So, Pollyanna, um, on Yes FM, I'm talking with Pollyanna Darling from the Sunshine Coast. And Pollyanna is also, um, as well as her involvement in very many kind of environmental um, areas, is also an author, a published author, who has written two books uh, or published, I should say, two books um, already a while ago and has just finished writing another book, which uh, she would love to talk to us about. So Pollyanna did mention to me before we started the show that um, she has written um, a very personal book about her uh, a journey that she's taken, um, starting off from uh, being crippled in bed uh, with a spinal injury to eventually being able to... Um, conquer this and be go over to win the women's over 50s paddleboard national championships which to me sounds like an incredible thing i've only stood on a stand-up paddleboard once for about five minutes on a very calm little lake in the blue mountains and um that was challenge enough so i can't even imagine racing the things so <laughs> pollyanna take us on take us on this journey i'd love to know it sounds like a completely um something that has required a lot of overcoming of grief, I'm sure, and um, many other things besides. So, yeah, take us on this little journey with with you. So I I have a bunch of injuries in my spine. I had a car accident in 2012 and then I had another injury in my thoracic spine and then in 2017 I herniated a disc and it triggered a whole cascade of kind of pain and I ended up in bed unable to do anything just constantly in terrible pain and I spent six months lying on my bed and knitting I was I learned to crochet and I crocheted a lot of face washes and listened to some very good podcasts and you know basically thought oh I'm never going to be able to garden again because I couldn't lift my arms up properly and I you know I won't be able to had to rehome a very boisterous dog because I couldn't walk her and I had you know I just wasn't really functioning at all and my life closed down to this incredibly small limited thing and I had four children at the time and a partner and it was it was really quite a it was dark, but also, um, I guess, like a, a field that's been ploughed or something and is just waiting for, waiting for something to happen. Anyway, I had this long journey of trying to heal from this pain and, and that for some reason that involved a stand-up paddleboard. So one day, I, about three years later, after my marriage ended, I randomly decided to join the Sunshine Coast Stand-Up Paddleboard Club. <laughs> I'd, I'd only been on a paddleboard maybe for an hour total before that, and I didn't have a board and I didn't have a paddle, and the very nice people there lent me a board and a paddle, and I had no idea what I was doing. And I started paddling with them and for the first 
I don't know, months. Every time I went out, I'd be in t- terrible pain. Um, I was up and out of bed by this time, but I was just often in pain, debilitating headaches. Like I just had a really horrendous chronic pain thing going on. And I tried every kind of help for it and nothing worked. And I, I, so I decided that, you know, once I'd gone out paddling and the pain lasted three days instead of five days afterwards that I'd go and do a second paddle during the week. So I kind of gradually, gradually built up some level of resilience and I started to trust my body that I could go and do something and I would gradually get stronger. And I had this, I just had this extraordinary journey that lasted, I don't know, three years or something from when I started paddling until earlier this year of incrementally improving what was going on in my body and incrementally getting stronger and incrementally doing things that I had never imagined I'd ever be able to do at all, never mind again. And it was a, it was a really um, kind of deep process of regenerating my body and also my mind because prior to that I never really – I guess I didn't trust that my body could regenerate. I'd had a lot of, I had a diagnosis from an orthopedic surgeon that I was just going to have to live with this terrible pain forever and there was nothing that could be done about it. And if anything, it was going to deteriorate. So I had this really hardcore diagnosis. Um, yeah. And I, at some point I, I did my first race and I won it. And I was astonished. <laughs> I couldn't believe I'd won a race. I was like, that's ridiculous. I've never even done a race before. And I'm not a sports, you know, I've never been into sports. So it was even more surprising. That's and incredible. I in, yeah, I was in terrible pain after the race for about two weeks because it just put everything out. But I kept, I kept going. I just kept going. And I had to do it my way. So... You know, people were trying to, you know, go, yeah, you can do longer training and you can do this and you can do that. I was like, no, I can't. I have to do this my way. I have to do it slowly. I have to do it incrementally. Um, And I needed to just not listen to anyone else, just myself and my body. And, And then there came this opportunity to go to the national competition earlier this year. And it took me two weeks to even hit submit on the registration for the competition because I just thought, you know, I haven't been paddling very long. Who am I to go and compete at a national level? That's ridiculous. And what if I really hurt myself? And, yeah, it was really – it was a hard – it was a hard thing to do – and anyway, I had a friend who said, oh, just do it. Just do it, Pollyanna. Just hit the, hit the button. So, <laughs> so I did. And I went and I trained really hard for that um, and hurt myself a lot and recovered and hurt myself and recovered. And and then I went down there and to Geelong and competed and I got two gold medals and a silver, and which also astonished me. Um, but I guess the reason I wrote the book was because when I was in all that terrible pain and I had this dreadful diagnosis that said, you know, this is it for you and this is what your life's going to be like and actually it's probably going to get worse, 
I, you know, I was living my life in a very small way to avoid future pain. And I, I, I want people to know that change can happen. And I know how debilitating it is to be in a place of chronic pain where, you know, it's, it can be very depressing and, um, life can feel very small. And, and often the things that medical people say are not, are not, they don't help you to broaden your perspective and find ways to change the situation. And so when I told a few people about this journey that I'd been on, they said, Oh, you, you have to write about this because people should know that this is possible. And, and so that's what I would love to happen is that people will read this, the book and know that it's possible. And I have deliberately written it very short because I had very limited bandwidth for anything when I was, <laughs> when I was in a lot of pain and, uh, let alone long, long waffly books about stuff. So I've, <laughs> I've purposefully written something very short and, um, it was a really creative process because a lot of what I realized during that journey was that the, the pain body that I was carrying was formed from some very dysfunctional things that took place in my childhood. And so I had this wonderful creative process writing the book, which was also seems to me it should be some kind of therapy. <laughs> I'm sure it is. Book yeah, therapy. It probably is already. But anyway, that's, I would like, I would love it. What I would love is for anyone who's in chronic pain right now to, to know that a diagnosis is not, you know, they're not an absolute thing. It's an opinion and, and that things can change and that the body can change and that everything can be regenerated. And I'm, it's not to say that I'm not, I don't get in pain now because I do I do end up pushing too hard or doing the wrong thing and I end up in pain but I trust my body now to to recover and I believe in my resilience and it's been a revolution for me and it took me six years but yeah I want I I want people to understand that these things are possible and they don't ha no one has to go and be a paddleboard champion. <laughs> That's just my <laughs> weird path of recovery. Um, because I love it because you get to be out on the water with no motor, just, you, you know, gliding across the water and there's turtles and I've paddled with whales this year. That was amazing. It's just a really beautiful thing to do. Yeah, it does. Um, the the very limited experience of mine was very uh, was very peaceful when I got my balance. So on Yes FM, we've been uh, listening to Pollyanna Darling tell us about her journey from um, dealing with uh, chronic crippling pain uh, through becoming a paddleboard champion. And so Pollyanna, there was a lot in in the story that you shared. So thank you first of all for sharing that with us. Um, and you did mention the word resilience, which had uh, come up a couple of times. And I was thinking as you were speaking, you know, about how much resilience you had and, and obviously a great deal of inner strength. Um, and you mentioned that, 
you know, you think that some of your, uh, the pain or the pain body, as you mentioned, is to do with childhood. And, but I was going to ask, you know, where do you think that this, you must have a great deal of inner strength that you've developed, um, to keep so resilient and to just keep going on where I think so many people, um, don't do that for one reason or the other. So, so where do you think this, um, inner strength of yours really comes from? What does it rely on? Well, I think it comes from many things. I think it comes from it. Co- it comes in part from the experiences I had as a child and needing to look after myself a lot of the time and others, and take responsibility and uh, be in situations which were much less than ideal, shall we say? Um, so I, de- I know I developed a lot of resilience in that, but I think I already was a fairly indomitable, <laughs> indomitable child. <laughs> so, but also part of it was wanting to show up for my children because when I was in that place of chronic pain, I was in my bedroom a lot. I wasn't really engaging with my family. Um, I didn't have any bandwidth for anything because that's how it is. If you're in pain a lot, you just, your life kind of narrows down to this very small kind of coping with the pain thing and showing up for other people and being who you want to be, it becomes more difficult. And so part, part of building that resilience was about, you know, being who I wanted to be for my children and being able to be there for them and engaged with their lives and then another part is just, I guess, my love for the natural world and and the planet that we live on and, and, and life in general. So, like, wanting to be engaged with life and with regenerating life. So I think there was something happening on a, a whole lot of levels that it's it feels like it's part of my soul to to want to participate in the regeneration of life on this planet. And I needed to be regenerated for that to be even remotely possible because I wasn't really doing much other than making a lot of face washes. (laughs) They're very Um, useful though. That's about all I can crochet as well. They are useful and they were quite pretty. (laughs) (laughs) But I think I I wanted my, I've always wanted my contribution to be, bigger than face washes you know i i really want to see life thriving on this planet and if you've ever been anywhere where the soil is healthy the trees are healthy the animals are healthy there's lots of birds and insects and reptiles the people are healthy the water is clean the air is good if you've been anywhere like that ever the feeling of being in that is so right and so um alive that and i've i'm privileged enough to have had that experience a few times in my life and what became clear to me after the the most recent time i nearly died which was in 2015 was that i want to devote my life to seeing more of that happen and i it's maybe it won't happen in my lifetime but I'm determined to plant the seeds so that my children have got have got the opportunity to continue.
continue to tend to that. Hmm. And um, so, and I know you're, not, you're planting seeds uh, metaphorically there, so that uh, as you say, your children can be involved. But I also know that you've planted a lot of other seeds. <laughs> I'm sure. And so, to the prime minister, and you know rant and rave about things that were happening in the world that uh, seemed to me to be not right at all. So, and I did a lot of kind of activist work, but it really burnt me out. It wasn't, you know, the fighting against things just is not right for me at all. It gets me very stressed out and worn out and exhausted. Um, So when Tree Sisters came along and there was this opportunity to contribute to thriving and to actually be doing something really creative and generative and uh, that builds more life that it, you know it's good for the humans and if, <laughs> with regenerative agriculture human beings are fulfilling their role as part of nature you know, as stewards and as being useful to the ecosystems that they are a part of. And so I, I find it incredibly exciting to be, to be doing this work now. And, and the, the organization that I'm actually working with has come up with this incredible way to value the ecological improvement that farmers, regenerative farmers create as they go about their business of farming and, and that value will then enable them to be rewarded and for people to support them to do more of that work, which I know there's some statistics out there that say that, you know, if everyone switched over to regenerative agriculture, it it would sequester something like 50% of the carbon that needs to be sequestered. But carbon aside, it also does all of these other amazing things that I mentioned before. And. So, yeah, I have heard a bit about regenerative agriculture. I'm not uh, – it's it's about sort of – at its basis, isn't it about improving the soil and things then following on from there? What's the main sort of um, – could you describe just a little bit about, about what it involves? Yeah, so it's an interesting thing because unlike, you know, an organic standard or biodynamic standard or something like that, it's not a fixed practices, which one of the ones that people know about is – cell grazing. So instead of running, I don't know, 10,000 cattle on, you know, in two massive paddocks that are many hectares each, they might run much smaller mobs of cattle through 180 different paddocks. And that means that the the land in those paddocks can be resting for up to 10 months, which is amazing when you consider that previously it might have been grazed almost all of the time. And during that time, the soil recovers, the microorganisms in the soil recover, the um, different species of plants can grow so that you get much more of a meadow effect rather than just grass. And so you, the biodiversity returns to the paddock. And then when the cows do come back in, they can browse for species that are they need. So animals naturally will eat the herbs that they need for their own health. And so the the animals become much healthier and then that in turn leads to the people who are consuming the animals to to be much healthier. So there's a kind of compounding health effect that happens throughout the landscape, the animals, the people, 
and mm. yeah. So <laughs> before I go off on a massive tangent, to uh, to answer your question, regenerative farming covers a whole raft of techniques and practices that farmers can use to work more aligned with nature. So in conventional farming, there's uh, historically has not been a great deal of alignment with nature. It's about, you know, production and putting artificial fertilizers and all of the sides, the insecticides and the herbicides and, you know, just kind of having this very industrial mindset towards the land. Whereas regenerative farming doesn't take an industrial mindset. It's a mindset that is about understanding the landscape that, that you're working with and the, the composition of the nature that's there and the way the water flows and the microbiome in the soil and using any number of different techniques to have a completely a much healthier system that includes the soil, the animals, the food that's produced, the water, the air quality, everything. And it really, I mean, standing on a piece of land that's being farmed regeneratively, you can feel the aliveness in it. Like there's a felt difference in the place. And it really excites me because I made this promise to, you know, contribute to a thriving planet and this feels like one of the ways that that can happen in a very holistic and healthy way for for everything it sounds beautiful i'm i'm thinking it also sounds like a very lot of fences <laughs> <laughs> well it, i mean some of those fences are temporary like there are people that are mo- they they're using movable fences um, uh. some of them and that's only one, I guess that's only one regenerative technique. I mean, people are using lots of different ways of working with the land. We, we work with some, a couple of farmers in WA who ha- have sheep and they have not drenched their sheep for 17 years. So they don't have to apply any sides to their, <laughs> to their sheep and the sheep have got a really healthy microbiome in their stomachs and they go out onto the land and they poo on the land and their their poo helps the microbiome in the soil. And then these farmers are, they create something called Johnson Sioux extract, which is like a microbiotic composty liquid that gets sprayed on the land, which also builds the microbiome. And so you know, what they're doing is amazing. It blows my mind. And they grow wonderful wheat from this incredibly healthy soil. And what I learned recently, which I didn't really get before, was that when you have a healthy microbiome in the soil and you grow wheat from that soil, the wheat maintains, you know, it kind of brings some of that healthy microbiome with it. And it has all these amino acids that are really good. And then when you make bread from that and people eat the bread, it's really healthy for your own microbiome. So there's this kind of cycle of healthy microbiome that goes from the soil right through to your own belly. And 
that something about that just blows my mind and makes me really excited. <laughs> yeah. So just for people <laughs> listening who who aren't um, sure, microbiome is referring to all the bacteria and uh, is it just bacteria or also the uh, fungi, perhaps um, that live inside us and inside the soil and in and on everything. And in fact, I believe we're actually more of us is bacteria than, than non-bacteria. I think so. Yeah. Case? I mean, we're, we're basically a torus, you know, we've got a hole through the middle. <laughs> and all through the middle of us is full of bacteria and viruses and funguses that are healthy for us and, you know, good ones that are helping our bodily processes. And they're all over our skin and they're all through the soil and the, you know, a healthy ecosystem includes all of the good bacteria and the good fungi and the good viruses and, and, you know, they're supporting us in, in, well, pretty much everything that we do. And of course there are some bad ones and those are the ones that people hear about. But yeah, when I'm talking about the microbiome, I'm talking about all the little biology, the, the tiny, <laughs> the tiny beings yeah. that, that bring health to soil and sheep stomachs and human stomachs and yeah, how ecosystems to thrive. Yeah, I feel like you know maybe this is the way that we communicate with nature is it's not so much us you know thinking that we're communicating, but in fact you know our bacteria, their bacteria, and then they're constantly swapping all the time. Every time you <laughs> eat something, uh, every time sorry, I just turned my own microphone off. Every time you eat something, every time you go to the um the go to the loo. <laughs> Yeah, you are uh, communing with nature, and nature is communing with you by swapping these things over all the time, isn't it? Yeah, when you know there are some people that think that we are actually being farmed by the bacteria and viruses. <laughs> well, that would you know all of a sudden make life make a lot more sense, wouldn't it? <laughs> yes. I heard someone the other day saying that when you have a food craving, it's not you; it's actually the you know, the bacteria in your gut that are going, give me some, you know, give me some sugar or, you know, whatever it is. Yeah. Give me a nice piece of bread and butter. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. So forget so the matrix, lot- it's, the, it's the bacteria <laughs> control. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, you know, the thing is they are this, uh, you know, they're this thing that, that makes everything thrive. So a healthy forest, for example, under the soil, all of the roots are connected up by mycelial fungi that are passing nutrients between the roots of the trees and messages and sugars and you know all of those kind of things like there's there's this whole world that is contributing to the aliveness of everything that we pay no attention to and in conventional ways of looking at nature and the world we mostly tend to kill it off by you know maybe by accident i mean Things like glyphosate and other poisons, they, they tend to, in the short term, kill off the microbiome of the soil, which makes the structure of the soil different, makes it harder for plants to take up nutrients, which is why, you know, when you do a lot of spraying, only weeds can grow because they're the only things that can kind of grow in soil that's been denatured, basically. So, yeah, we need, we need all those little guys, the microbiota, we need the little guys to be thriving and then we can thrive and the forest can thrive and the soil can thrive and the animals can thrive. Mm. I think there might even be, I could be making this up, but I feel that I've heard that there's actually more life under the soil than there is above it. 
Yeah, you could be right there. I'm not sure. So on, um, I wish I could, <laughs> because I can't hear you very well, Pollyanna, I'm skipping between turning my microphone on and off and I keep turning mine off when I go to turn it on. <laughs> <laughs> So apologies for that, community radio at its best, you know. Um, yeah, so on Yas FM, uh, your voice in the valley here, we've been speaking with Pollyanna Darling from uh, Queensland about regeneration of uh, the body, of the mind, uh, of the soil, of the planet. Is there another aspect to regeneration, do you think, Pollyanna? Yes, there is, because one of the things, you know, that I've touched on briefly is is community um, and one of the things that we could be regenerating is community and I'm, I'm just one of the things that's popping into my mind right now there is some there's a woman in your part of the world called Edwina, Edwina Robinson who is has been integral to the creation of some micro forests pocket forests around um, Canberra and that sort of area and what she's been doing is bringing, helping communities come together to build these microforests. And the microforests are really amazing. They're built with the Miyawaki method, which uh, is very dense planting, which enables the plants to, you know, be sharing nutrients early on and also to sort of be competing for the light. So it grows really fast. And they're designed specifically for urban and suburban areas. They grow in very small spaces. They're very dense. They have lots of biodiversity. They grow fast. And they bring people together in a way that is nurturing life and nurturing the future for the children of the community. And I think there's something there's something for us as human beings in coming together as communities to regenerate the places where we are because there's a lot of big problems in the world, right, that we're always being hammered with, hit over the head with all these big problems. And it's too much for most people. It tends to breed apathy. It tends to freeze people. And one of the things that we can do is look after where we are, is is come together to care for the places where we live and work and look after the water there and plant trees for our children and um, tend to one another and maybe provide spaces for grieving and, you know, just uh, tend to the life that is where, where we are. And, and through our tending and our care and our action, it, it regenerates the places that we we are. And if every, I mean, if you imagine if everybody in the world did that, if everybody came together and tended the place where, where they were, everything would change. Indeed, <laughs> because, the whole world. <laughs> the whole world would change. And we probably don't even need the whole world to do it. We just need some people to do it. The people who, you know, have care and passion and, um, bandwidth, because not everybody's in the, a space to do this and I know that from my time of you know crocheting face washes not everybody's in the right space to be able to do it but those of us that can you know none of that care is ever wasted none of that passion is ever wasted none of the actions that people take are ever a waste like one person planting one tree is a wonderful thing and so whatever it is that someone can do it is worth doing like nothing is too small and i think if we can 
shift our way of thinking to 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 be much more local and to stop uh, being overwhelmed by the massive issues which we can't control anyway and and bring a regenerative kind of attitude to the places where we are that that does change everything yeah absolutely and you know small steps small things they are really the only thing that that each one person can do isn't it but like you say they can add up tremendously yeah and also one of the things that i notice is that when you engage in the regeneration of where you are which could be you plant a veggie patch or it might be that you put a tree in or it might be you hold a grieving circle or it might be whatever it is that you're doing to nourish where you live and work it has this kind of bonus effect of nourishing you so it's because you're part of where you are if you put your efforts into regenerating where you are you are also regenerating yourself Absolutely. Yeah, that's a beautiful thing as well. Well, um, I can't believe that it's 5 to 11, Pollyanna, and <laughs> it's it's so easy to just, when we have this space and time, uh, to actually discuss these things, to really really let it uh, range far and wide, and who would have thought we'd ended up there from the beginning of the conversation. Um, I'd like to thank you very, very much for coming on to YASFM today and speaking about your passion, uh your your incredible resilience um i'd like to congratulate you on you know becoming a sort of gold medal winner of um paddleboard championships and it's it's a very inspiring um story i am sure for lots of people so Pollyanna, if people are interested to uh, find out more about what you do, is there a way that um, they can contact you? Do you have a website or some other way people could find out more about the work that you do? Yeah, I'm on LinkedIn. You can find me on LinkedIn as Pollyanna Darling. And uh, if anyone wants to have a look at the work that I'm doing, you can look up Love to be Bright Green. And there's a website, which is brightgreens.io. But you can also find that on my LinkedIn. So, yeah. And and if anybody wants to talk more about what I've been talking about, I'm very happy to chat with people. So you can reach out to me on LinkedIn. Great. Well, thank you so much again for joining us, Pollyanna. I hope you have a great day. I am having a bit of a break from Women's Voices over the Christmas period, so I'll be back again uh, at the end of January. And I'm going to leave you today with a song sung by Kate Miller-Heideke, The Little Water Song, which I thought sounded a bit of appropriate with all our talk about the environment and how important water and um, the water cycle. We didn't get much into the water cycle, but I know also, Pollyanna, I could probably have another (laughs) interview with you all about the water cycle. So, yeah. So thanks for joining us. And uh, we will see you next time. Thank you for having me. Under You're welcome. Here, you just take my breath away. And under here, the water flows over my head. I can hear the little fishes. Under here, whispering your most terrible name And under here, they've given me starfish for eyes And your head is a big red balloon
Under.